Good morning, everybody. Uh, welcome to another United States Study Center webinar. Um, or good evening, if you happen to be joining us as one of our special guests is uh, from the East Coast of the United States. Here in Australia, it's Friday, the 10th of September, the 9th of September uh, in the United States. And of course, uh, we're bringing this webinar to you today on the eve, at least in Australia time, uh, of the 20th anniversary of the September 11, 2001 attacks, uh, New York, Washington DC and Pennsylvania, that certainly, as it's common to say, changed everything. And certainly changed a lot for the mission of the United States military and, and the Australian military and, and, and the Alliance itself. Um, September 2021 is a month um, full of anniversaries, as was September 2001. Uh, John Howard, of course, the Prime Minister of Australia at the time, was in Washington, D.C. on this date uh, to celebrate the 50th anniversary of Australia's alliance with the United States, um, was in Washington, D.C. Uh, the next morning, uh, uh, of course, as, as is well known um, to those of us uh, keen observers of Australian politics. But, but here we are celebrating just a, a week ago at the U.S. Study Centre, the 70th anniversary of the US-Australia alliance. But of course it's tinged um, because here we are uh, only a week or so later uh, talking about the 20th anniversary of uh, the 9-11 attacks. And of course this takes place in the shadow of the images we've seen from Afghanistan in recent weeks, if you will, a, a vivid uh, demonstration that perhaps a 20 year phase of the alliance, uh, its mission focus on counterterrorism, counterinsurgency, uh, um, mentorship, uh, reconstruction in theatres far away from both the United States and Australia. The last couple of weeks, if anything, represent a, a vivid demonstration of, of perhaps an end to that era, or at least that, that the way we conduct those operations and their prominence in the Alliance agenda certainly changing. Um, now both Australia and the United States look to focus the Alliance much closer to Australia. Uh, the Australia-US alliance, a key element in a network of alliances and partnerships working on a wide array of challenges here in the Indo-Pacific. And we thought today's webinar would be an occasion to use uh, the importance of, of the, the symbolism of, of the 20 years um, since 9-11 to sort of reflect on that 20 years, but uh, as is our sort of a big agenda here at the United States to think about what comes next for the Alliance. So that was the concept behind today's webinar. And I'm so thrilled um, that we're going to be joined in just a minute uh, by Major General uh, Duncan Lewis, um, who um, of course uh, in, in 2001, January 2001, was made the inaugural commander of Australian Special Operations. Uh, our timing is everything you might say. Um, after that role, and we'll get into uh, Duncan's um, um, contributions uh, uh, to, to the post 9-11 uh, operations in the Middle East. Uh, but in civilian life, uh, Duncan went on to serve as National Security Advisor in the Rudd government. He was the Secretary of the Department of Defense, and then uh, most recently served as Director General of Security. So a, a number of very big jobs uh, in, in Australian uh, in the Australian government, both in uniform and, and out of uniform. And uh, he joined the United States Study Center as a non-resident fellow earlier this year. Joining Duncan from the United States, uh, we're so honored to have General David Petraeus, um, who had a 37 year career in, in the US Army, um, rising to leadership roles, including serving as commanding general of multinational force Iraq, uh, leading US Central Command, and commander of the International Security Assistance Force in Afghanistan. He also served as director of the Central Intelligence Agency during the presidency of Barack Obama. And so paralleling Duncan, a career in uniform going on to a, a, a very important uh, role in government uh, in, out of uniform in, in, in civilian life. And in 2009, General Petraeus, in recognition of the close work uh, between the two militaries, Australian and US militaries. Uh, in 2009, General Petraeus was awarded an honorary order of Australia. And to lead the conversation between Duncan and General Petraeus today, uh, we're thrilled to be joined by Ambassador Jane Hardy, a visiting non, uh, sorry, a visiting senior fellow, not non-resident, a visiting senior fellow um, here at the US Study Center. 
Um, Jane, of course, is a senior diplomat in the Australian uh, DFAT system, uh, three decades of experience uh, behind her serving posts um, all around the world, but predominantly with an Indo-Pacific focus, uh, and most recently um, served as Australia's most senior civilian representative in Honolulu, uh, which involves a lot of interfacing uh, with the leadership of Indo-PACOM. Jane, of course, is, is published um, away from her, her, her role in government, uh, speaks broadly uh, on, on cultural and strategic matters of key interest to Australia, uh, the United States and partners. And of course, her work with us at the US Study Centre includes the theme of today's webinar, that is this ongoing evolution of the Australia-US alliance. Um, and I should also, as is customary at the start of all our events here, I'm, I'm in the office today for this webinar, getting myself in front of a decent webcam. The United States Study Centre here at the University of Sydney stands on the traditional lands of the Gadigal people, the Gadigal part of the Eora Nation. And we pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. Thank you to our three distinguished guests today. It, it is a, a, just a privilege the United States Study Centre to be bringing this conversation to our, to our Australian and, and listeners around the world. Uh, Jane, um, over to you to lead the conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, um, Professor Simon Jackman. And good morning and good evening to our two generals. Without a word of hubris, two of our greatest strategic thinkers and practitioners. And I want to get right down to the day of the 911 attacks 20 years ago. Everyone is interested in listening to their inner voices and listening to others recount what they were doing. Could I ask General Petraeus first, what was your immediate reaction when you saw and understood what was happening? Well, I was actually deployed already at that time. I was doing a year in Bosnia uh, as a one-star general, the Assistant Chief of Staff for Operations for the NATO Stabilization Force there, and also had a US hat for a clandestine joint task force doing the war criminal hunt, which then actually did the first counterterrorism operation uh, after 9-11. It was actually not in Afghanistan, it was in Sarajevo. Uh, I was out with a unit that day. We were coming back, we were waiting for a helicopter to pick us up to take us to Sarajevo. And I remember watching on TV as they were talking about a plane had run into one of the World Trade Centers and it was a blue sky day. And, you know, everybody was talking about how could someone make such a catastrophic error? And then as we were watching, the second plane plowed into it and we knew that we were in for a real change. Uh, and I think it's very important to remember at this, you know, 20 year remove the feeling of strategic ticking time bomb after that. And I'm sure that that Duncan felt that as well. And by the way, what a pleasure to be back with Duncan, given all that he did of really over the past 20 years in really key assignments. But, you know, and we were in this special mission unit intelligence world, and all of a sudden we're getting all of this information that seemed to indicate that this was just the first attack of what we feared would be several more uh, coming down the road. And that context, I think, is very important to remember, and it's very difficult to appreciate now, um, but it was very acute back then, the sense of the need for force protection, preparation, do everything we can to identify these next attacks, uh, to prevent them from happening, and, and all the rest of that. And of course, as you know, it was for Duncan, who was either then or very quickly took command of your special operations forces for the initial operations of both of the wars, you know, the rest of life was changed uh, for a really good 20 years for those of us who were in uniform. And uh, General Duncan Lewis, over to you. What, uh, what were your immediate thoughts? Jane, thank you very much. And thank you for your introduction. Could I also just say uh, well done to the US Study Center for running this event. And what a great privilege it is for me also to be on with General David Petraeus, an old friend and colleague from uh, so many years uh, over the, uh, the course of uh, you know, our journey since 9-11. David, it's good to see you. Um, yeah, look, the, the day this happened, it was nighttime, of course, here. I was in Sydney. Uh, I'd been out uh, entertaining the commander of the Royal Thai Army and the commander of the Thai Special Forces. I was at that stage a young brigadier, a one-star, uh, I was a commander of the, what's called the Special Forces Group at that stage. 
it was uh, commanded at one star level and, and a much smaller organisation than it is uh, today. Um, and I received a phone call. I was actually in bed. Uh, we'd just gone to sleep and uh, I received a phone call from my boss who said in his laconic kind of voice, Duncan, you should turn on the television. And at that point, I turned on the TV in time to see the second aircraft going into mm. tower number two. Um, you looked, as we all did, in disbelief. You know, what are we seeing? What, what, what is this all about? Uh, and then the enormity, I think, of the, of the mm -hmm. event uh, struck us. It was uh, something that was going to change the course of history. Um, I received a phone call the next morning from our Chief of Army, General Peter Cosgrove at the time, uh, and he said, Duncan, uh, we've talked to the Prime Minister. Uh, of course, as we all know, our Prime Minister was in Washington at the time. That made Australia's response uh, personal, visceral and quite quick because of his position and his experience. And so... Um, I was asked by General uh, Cosgrove how quickly I could double the special forces. And I said, well, it's not that easy. You know, that, that, is, that is something else. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's not done quickly. Uh, but look, I'll give it my best shot. We'll see what we can do. So from that point on, basically, uh, life was manic uh, as we went into this expansion mode and we looked at what we were going to do. Um, the last point I'd make is that the military option for Australia without a, much of a presence at that stage in the Middle East, other than a, a ship or two that were on station. We, we had no really substantial footprint there. The issue was how we were going to project and with whom and in what way. And I must say that the early burden of that fell very heavily on the Special Forces community. We deployed a Special Forces group within days. Uh, it went into uh, the Middle East uh, and ended up in um, just south of Kandahar, deployed with a Marine group that was down there under the command of the then Brigadier. Yep. Gosh, Dave, we were all Brigadiers then. Yes, uh, we were. Brigadier yeah, Jim, Mattis. Jim Mattis was the commander, and I remember meeting him in the, the back of a hangar. Very late one night, I was with General Cosgrove, and we handed over command of the Special Forces Task Force uh, to Jim Mattis in, in, uh, in just south of Kandahar. Well, the short-term impact you've both explained in such visceral terms. Um, it, it's very reassuring actually to hear your inside account of how our two militaries and systems are able to pivot and ramp up so nimbly. Um, you know, what, what underpins that of course is the huge levels, high levels of consensus, our political leadership taking us forward and providing us with the platforms to work this way together and then to ramp up operationally. Um, there are short and long-term impacts, of course, of, of 911. Um, Duncan, what do you think was the longest term, or, or following that immediate ramp up and then our entry into the land wars, what, what was the, the medium and longer term impacts that you see following uh, those early decisions? Mm. Yeah, Jane, there were many impacts. I'll just speak to two of them. Uh, the first one is on our way of life. I think it has changed the way we all live, not just in the Western world. I think this is around the world. Um, I mean, we live in a, in a security bubble now that was unthinkable mm -hmm. when I was a young man. Um, the notion that I would be checked and sort of tapped down at an airport or something was just unthinkable as a, as a young person. We now accept all of that. So there's all sorts of security intrusion in our life. You know, it's affected the way we design buildings. It's affected the way we fly. It's affected almost everything. So I think, and that is not going to go away anytime soon because, you know, one of the big lessons that I think I draw from this whole 20-year experience is that while, and I think you mentioned, Simon, it's, it's kind of the end of the book. It's actually the end of a chapter, in my view, because I think that the, the notion that terrorism is suddenly going to go away is fanciful. Uh, how it presents is another matter. Uh, look, the second impact that was e enduring, I think, was an, an, a point of great interest to all of us this, this morning, uh, is the effect on the alliance and the fact that the ANZUS alliance now, when you look at it, uh, not, I'm not looking at the political side of it because that's, that is another matter and, and uh, worthy of consideration, but from a military point of view, 
the relationship between the United States Defence Forces and Defence Department and the Australian Defence Forces and Defence Department are in a very different place now than they were before 9-11. And it goes down to things as important as personal relationships, that we've got a generation of military officers and a generation of senior defence bureaucrats who actually know one another and have known one another for almost all of their senior working life. Um, so I think, you know, interoperability of the defence forces, all of that sort of thing, we've come out of this in a very good way in that sense. And particularly when you look at the kind of the threats and the risks that we face in our region going forward, I'd want to be on a very firm footing uh, to go into that environment, and I believe we are. Mm. And uh, David Petraeus, um, I was in Washington when you developed the US's counterinsurgency campaign with, with Dr. Uh, Kilcullen, who's still a very interesting person to listen to on the airwaves. Um, can you take us through that process? I, I think President Bush had received uh, the 2006 Iraq study group report, but, but decided to double down. It would be really interesting to hear about your experience and your leadership at that time getting into the area of terrorism which has dominated so much of our national our respective national security and international security positions in the last uh, two decades. Well, I had already by that point in time done two tours in Iraq and actually they ended up being nearly two and a half years. So as a division commander, of the great 101st Airborne Division, we did the invasion of Iraq, the fight to Baghdad. And then we were the one division that was tapped to stick around and we went up into Mosul. And that's when the insurgency began and we started to have to conduct true counterinsurgency uh, campaigns. And I realized during that time that our doctrinal foundation was basically lacking. Then there was sort of an interim manual that was put out. It was not, not really satisfactory and, and in fact, um, my boss, eventually the chief of staff of the army. In fact, when I went back uh, after the three-star tour, I came back and did that. Uh, that was 15 and a half months, uh, that tour. Uh, and I asked the chief, what, you know, what would you like me to do out at Fort Leavenworth? I'll be in charge. I have six different hats. You control all of the uh, schools, uh, training centers, everything else for all of the commission, non-commissioned warrant officer, uh, leadership education, everything basically, and a whole bunch of other uh, entities and training centers said, what do you want me to do, chief? And he said, shake up the army, Dave. And I said, I can do that if you've got my back. And it was a period where we recognized Iraq was starting not to go real well. Um, Afghanistan was actually doing okay, but it was really an economy of force effort. We didn't realize at that time until later that we really weren't doing what we should have been doing at that time. The Taliban were regrouping and we learned that later on but Iraq was getting out of control. And so we put a team together uh, of uh, US Army and, and Marine, Jim Mattis was once again, my partner for that. Uh, David McCullen was uh, an, an advisor to that effort. And it did, by the way, because what you talked about is how this reinvigorated ANZUS. Um, it also reinvigorated NATO. I mean, NATO after the end of the Cold War was an organization in search of a reason for living. Uh, you didn't yet have Vladimir Putin who has been the greatest gift to the NATO in more recent years. Uh, but at that time it was an organization looking for a mission. And of course, NATO immediately invoked uh, the Article Five collective self-defense uh, provision, the only time it has ever been invoked. Um, and I think it's true to say that for ANZUS that may have been the same issue. And then, but you even had US-Japan. I mean, all of these different US alliances around the world said, hey, how can we help? So we had everybody involved. We had instructors at Fort Leavenworth at the Command General Staff College was another one of the elements in that fiefdom um, that were from all of the different allied countries. Everybody got into this and we ended up publishing a manual in under a year. And Duncan will affirm this, I think that there's never in history been certainly not a U.S. Army field manual from start to finish published in less than a year. And it's basically because the chief of staff of the Army said, when you're ready to sign it, it's going to be published. We're going to have no council of colonels, council of generals, council of chiefs. Oh, that's it. And we did. And just around that time, I was starting to 
be asked to come back to Washington because people in the White House were going through this very lengthy review of what to do in Iraq. Um, and at one point in time, I was asked, you know, if you were selected to be the commander in Iraq, and they told me to expect that, although it was going to be another six months later than I actually ended up going back. Uh, if you were going to be the commander, what would you need in terms of forces? And my response to Megan O'Sullivan, who Duncan will remember was the war czar, if you will, in charge of Afghanistan and Iraq for President Bush, I said, Megan, I would need everything we can get. And by the way, that happens to be five army brigades and two Marine battalions, which is exactly what we got in the surge. And then we asked for some other stuff as well beyond combat forces. Um, but the real surge, the surge that mattered most actually wasn't the additional forces. Uh, it was the surge of ideas. It was the change in strategy that was almost 180 degrees. It was 180 degrees in terms of going back into the neighborhoods, securing the people by living with them, which is the only way that you can do it taking control back from the Iraqi security forces because they'd been so battered by this rising level of violence. They were in a civil war, a Sunni Shia civil war, and we had to arrest that. And we didn't have time to do it through them. We had to do it. We took back control. We also, for the first time, did wholesale reconciliation where you try to strip away the rank and file because we knew we couldn't kill or capture our way out of an industrial strength insurgency. You have to reconcile with as many of the rank and file as you can, even while with the uh, special forces, we even more relentlessly pursued the irreconcilable leaders of Al-Qaeda in Iraq, the Sunni insurgency organizations and the Iranian supported Shia militia. And frankly, it worked. Uh, and thankfully, it also worked fast enough that by the time Ambassador Ryan Crocker, my great diplomatic partner, and I went back at the six month mark, we had demonstrable progress to report. By the way, without that, we might literally have lost congressional support for that war. Um, and if ultimately, of course, it drove violence down by 85%. It gave Iraq three and a half years of really good period before tragically after, the, after we pulled our combat forces out uh, in late 2011, the prime minister undid it. And we ultimately, of course, that allowed the Islamic State to reconstitute. We had to go back in a couple of years later and all the rest. But, but that was how that all evolved. And of course, then uh, with President Obama coming into office with Iraq in good shape and, and the forces gradually declining there in, a, in an orderly manner. And of course, where we left at that place, you know, everything stayed fine until the prime minister started undoing things. But then the focus turned to Afghanistan. And it was very clear that we didn't even have the inputs right in Afghanistan, um, you know, a good eight years after that war started. And we really didn't get them right uh, until about nine years after. And it just so happened that by then I'd replaced Stan McChrystal as the commander. Uh, and for the first time we had the right strategy based on that counterinsurgency field manual, but very different context, much more challenging context, frankly, because the enemy's beyond your reach in Pakistan. Um, we had the right level of resources almost, 150,000, 50,000 of which, of course, were coalition forces. And I might note that in both Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, diggers, uh, Aussies, punched so far above their weight class that every Australian citizen should be very, very proud of them. And, you know, I, I think I am the only American, maybe in history, to command diggers in two different wars. Uh, and it was it was a true joy and a true honor. Uh, and they were in tough places uh, in, in Afghanistan in particular, uh, up in the Ruzgan pro uh, province. But so then that focus shifted. And finally, for the first time, uh, we really started to make progress there uh, that over time allowed us to draw down in a pretty orderly fashion for a number of years uh, until the, in a sense, strategic impatience uh, ultimately took hold. It's an amazing story to listen to you describe the huge number of factors that you must deal with as a, as a commander um, and pull them together, you know, working in Washington, working with Congress and so on. You see this at work, but it's very important to, for us all. Yep. Let me so just give an anecdote, by the way, that talks about the depth of the relationship between the US and Australia. When I was sent back for the three-star tour, it was on very short notice. I'd just gotten home 
uh, from the two-star tour. I was sent back to do an assessment of why things went wrong. I came back, reported out to Secretary Rumsfeld, had a set of recommendations. He said, these are great recommendations. Get back to Iraq uh, and implement them, uh, and we'll promote you. Uh, but I said, you know, but I'm a division commander, and I'm, you know, the great screaming eagles. But that was uh, fell on deaf ears. So anyway, I went back. And I got over there and I realized, wow, we have got just massive holes in this program. And so I called up Angus Houston, uh, who was the chief of defense staff at the time. Uh, and I said, Angus, uh, I know this is a really odd request, but among the many, many tasks that we have to take on for which we don't have the people, um, we have to build an entire logistical core system uh, structure, facilities, bases, and everything else. And there's literally nobody here to do that. And I've made a request to my government, but you know, by the time the request for forces makes it all the way to Secretary Gates' desk and then gets sourced and then they prepare the forces and we ultimately get them, you know, I'll be a third of the way through my tour. Uh, the US can respond incredibly uh, and sometimes really quickly, but routine, more routine stuff is just more difficult and the agility that Australia had was just breathtaking. He said, what do you need? I said, I need about 50 uh, commissioned and non-commissioned uh, logistical experts, uh, maybe throw in some great warrant officers as well. Um, and, you know, and I laid out really the tasks that we needed performed. These were really serious tasks. We had to stand up a school uh, just to train, you know, the enlisted non-commissioned and officers of the Iraqi army and all the rest of this. Uh, the depots, all of this. And they were literally there within a couple of weeks. I mean, it was just astonishing. And they built a really impressive and a whole depot system and everything else. And that, by the way, was where, you know, I'd already had experience with Aussies uh, when I'd been in Kuwait in an assignment and some others. But that was where I realized, wow, this really is very, very special. Um, and again, it may be smaller. It's a little bit like the CIA. You know, you don't have anywhere near the industrial strength capability of the U.S. military, but man, you can move fast. Um, and that was what uh, Australia did. And I remain grateful to uh, now Sir Angus uh, ever after. And Duncan Lewis, I'd love to hear an anecdote from you. You mentioned the interoperability of Australian forces with American forces. Uh, their uh, comrades in arms. Do you have a special and intelligence, language? by the way? Intelligence, intelligence. Officers too. yeah, yeah, I mean, very important. Nick, Nick Warner and I have you know like this over a decade or so. And yeah, I think that's very that's a very good point, David. I mean, it, it's not just the military, of course. The no. intelligence uh, relationship, you know, which I went into uh, a little yeah. later on, is is also extraordinarily tight. Um, yeah, look, I, I think the, the issue really, uh, when we deployed initially, and, and my, my sort of experience in an anecdotal sense was really around the Special Forces deployment. Um, and later on, of course, the Australian force diversified significantly with all sorts of other ground, air and, uh, and maritime forces uh, being involved. Um, uh, and what struck me is that at every level, and I saw this in my more senior days, uh, how we were able to operate in all of those domains, you know, on the ground, in the air and at sea uh, with our US and then, of course, our NATO partners. Um, David's raised a very important point about NATO. I had the great fortune of being the Australian ambassador to NATO. And David, I was there at the same time as another great yep. friend of ours, Doug Lutz. You know, Doug and yes. I were... We were young yep. majors together, students at the British Army Staff College back in the 1980s. And we both found ourselves uh, to be astonished to be ambassadors in, in Brussels. But the NATO relationship with Australia has also been um, brought to a new level, um, uh, which I think will augur well for the future, uh, because it is an important alliance and it's an important place for us to draw inspiration, support, technology and so forth. Um, on the intelligence side, going to David's point, um, later on when I took over as the head of uh, ASIO, um, again, I was astonished at the strength of the relationship between ourselves, uh, David's agency, and I remember visiting David in his office. Uh, uh, in fact, I was in his successor's office, that same office, David, with your successor when the attack at Lint Cafe in Sydney took place. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, 
And I remember him saying to me, Duncan, there's a terrorist attack in Sydney. And I said, oh, that's not possible. I'm the director of ASIO. I would know if that was happening. He said, well, have a look at the television. And indeed, so it was. Uh, the attack was in progress. Uh, that's the wonder of modern media coverage, of course. It happens in front of your eyes. And I had to hurry back to Australia. But I was always struck by the closeness of the relationship between mm -hmm. the US intelligence agencies and, and ourselves. And forever may it be so, because it is a relationship from which we derive enormous benefit. We do make meaningful uh, contribution. Very, very uh, mutual. We do, uh, but we do draw enormously from uh, from that relationship, and it's very special. The mention of the Lint Cafe attack reminds me of Bali in those terrible days after the mm -hmm. bombing at the nightclub in Bali. But um, before we move on to um, before we finish with the last 20 years in the era of counterterrorism, very dominant, um, and move on to the future, I just want to ask, and we can't, we can't not do this, the Afghanistan withdrawal is very prescient. It's in people's minds. We're seeing yet again some very distressing images, and we have our Afghan-Australian citizens, as you do, uh, Afghan-American citizens, and people who've worked with us there for these 20 years who are very important to us and have given greatly. Um, could I ask you each, perhaps start with uh, General pa uh, Petraeus, um, what do you take from these recent scenes on our TV screens and, um, and how do we move on from that? Well, again, as someone who served there, whose son served there, his daughter-in-law served there, who was the boss of it before he served there and then was CIA director after, you know, I have to be honest with you and say that it has been heartbreaking to watch what has happened. Um, I've also been um, more than a bit concerned to hear uh, descriptions of our Afghan partners is not willing to fight and die for their country. 66,000 of them fought and died for their country. That's 27 times the number of American losses. Um, and of course, in many respects, because of the rapidity of the collapse. Now, certainly they did not fight once they realized as a result of our withdrawal of, of our liaison teams, the close air support that that was enabled the withdrawal of the 8,500 coalition who couldn't stay without the, the U.S. there, and then the critical 17 or 18,000 contractors that maintained the U.S. provided quite sophisticated helicopters and planes that as that air force degraded in operational readiness, the Afghan forces realized out all around the country and they're under simultaneous attack uh, literally around the country by the Taliban, quite a masterful campaign you have to acknowledge. Uh, and they realize there's nothing coming to the rescue. Uh, there's no reinforcements, no emergency resupply, no aerial medevac, uh, and no close air support. And I think tragically, when you put soldiers in a situation like that, and their local leaders alongside them who are all texting with the Taliban trying to figure out how do you get out of this, um, they did what Afghans have done over many centuries, which is to recognize the shift in the wind and cut a deal. I actually did months ago state publicly uh, it, to the press that I was concerned that there could be a catastrophic psychological collapse of the Afghan forces once they actually realized this. Because again, when you learn that the contractors are being pulled, you realize they're not going to be able to maintain these very, very sophisticated helicopters and planes that we really insisted on giving to them. Uh, and so, in a way that was predictable, of course, it went so much faster. And it was such a, you know, really it's a, I don't know how you can describe an outcome that replaces a government, however imperfect, but was your ally. Um, however many shortcomings, it did fight side by side with you. Um, you know, however maddening certain aspects of it were, allowed us to have bases on their soil so that we could continue to keep Al-Qaeda from reestablishing the kind of base it had in Afghanistan when the 9-11 attacks were planned there under the Taliban, and also now to keep an eye on the Islamic State, to have that replaced by the Taliban, uh, which we'd been fighting for 20 years and which refused. Remember, there was an ultimatum given to the Taliban, you better get rid of Al-Qaeda from your soil 
or we will come in and do it. And they refused to do that. And that's why uh, we ultimately went into Afghanistan in, in, in 2001. Uh, so to see them replace us and now to hear that the Minister of Interior is a guy named Siraj Akani, uh, who has a $10 million bounty on his head from either the FBI or state. They, each one has five and the other has 10. And he's the Minister of Interior of the country and he's known to be quite close with Al-Qaeda. I don't know how to describe that outcome as anything other than disastrous. So it has been really for a number of American veterans, and I assume it's the same Duncan there, this has been fairly traumatic for them. Again, especially given what individuals sacrificed and of course the number of individuals who didn't return, who made the, you know, the, the ultimate sacrifice on the battlefield in Afghanistan and for their families. Now, I believe firmly uh, that what they did was very, very meaningful. Uh, Volunteering to serve your nation at a time of war is extraordinary. And indeed, what we provided for the Afghan people, again, we didn't go there to establish a democracy or allow women to go to college, but those were wonderful freedoms that they did enjoy as a result of what it was we did. And for those who perhaps may think that, you know, it all went wrong when we started doing nation building, if you don't do nation building, you have no capabilities to which you can transition the tasks that you're performing for the country. So we had to develop Afghan security forces. We had to help develop governmental institutions and we did successfully transition. And for a number of years, uh, it really was going quite well. And as my great diplomatic partner in Iraq and who later the ambassador in Afghanistan, Ryan Crocker described in the New York Times, he said, we just lost the policymakers lost strategic patience. Um, and so, you know, again, you can relitigate that over and over. Uh, but what we need to do, obviously, is talk about what do we do going forward? How do we exercise the influence that we have over a country that is completely broke and in which the lights could literally go out and food could literally run out? Uh, keep in mind that we have provided three quarters uh, of the budget. And again, it's usually the US and Japan and, and a handful of other countries. And um, they have no real source of revenue other than what they can generate from the illegal narcotics exports that they have always controlled. That's nowhere near enough. Um, we paid all of the 300,000 Afghan security forces and their operating expenses and spare parts and everything else. Um, again, they're in very, very deep trouble and they will find out very early on that it's a lot easier to be an insurgency than it is to be in charge of a country. Yeah, not least to mention the impact also on all of the surrounding countries. Duncan, your thoughts? Yeah, yeah, Jane, look, I'm, I'm struck by two of uh, David's descriptors there. The first one was sad and the second disastrous. Uh, on the sad side of it, there are many, many service personnel here in Australia who, who find this gut-wrenching to have seen the scenes yep. that uh, we saw over the last couple of weeks. Uh, I would say, however, uh, that uh, we need to be careful not to be completely morose about this. And I'll, I'll come back to that in a moment. It was very, very distressing, very disturbing. And there's been a lot of soul searching and questions asked, well, what was it all about? Um, uh, I believe that the uh, scenes we've seen over the last couple of weeks were very if not foreseeable, they were absolutely a yep. possible, if not probable, option. And that's the part that kind of worries me. So was the glide path to those final days and hours at Kabul, was that flight path down, the sort of the degrading of, of force, the withdrawal, was all of that managed, uh, you know, on the path that it should have been? And I think that'll be debated for a very long time. Um and of course, what it means is that Afghanistan has really gone back in many respects to kind of where it was. I, my first trip to Kabul, and David, you, you will recall this vividly. I remember going into the city uh, late in the evening. It was pitch black. There was not a light yeah. to be seen anywhere. Yeah. There was no rubbish being collected. Right. There was no power. There was no, I mean, the place, people were starving. They had no food uh, and it was just shocking. And yet 10 years later, I remember going into the city and seeing, you know, the lights were on, the rubbish was being collected, the, you know, all those things, the girls at school and so forth. But, but we had actually given the Afghans a, a picture of what life could be like. Now, 
you know, it, where it goes from here, of course, is anybody's business. It'll probably be very, very different. Um, the other thing that concerns me is that the scenes of the withdrawal, I think, will give succor to some who would still wish us harm. Yes. And I think we need to be very, very careful of that because, uh, you know, there's much in the media about, well, the United States has been, you know, badly damaged and, and you know, its reputation damaged and so forth. As I say, I, I wouldn't get overly sort of wound up about that personally, um, but I do think that there would be those who would still wish us harm that would have come away from watching that and saying, well, you know, maybe there's a chance for another round here. Um, and I think we need to be very, very careful of that, particularly as you know, we're about to move on, Jane, to talk about the near region here. You know, when we move into the broader geostrategic challenges, um, you know, the fact, I suppose, is that terrorism was never going to be an existential threat to the United States of America or to Australia. Uh, but but it, it is something that we do have to address in order to protect our citizens. So um, I think we, uh, you know, we're in a fairly difficult spot right now. I personally was very disappointed by what I saw. And you can't help but reflect on, you know, the efforts that were made by so many over so long uh, to end like that. But I do recall, Jane, as, a, you know, when we first looked at going into Afghanistan, we'd all read the history books. You know, there was nobody that I ever met in uniform of any rank that hadn't read the history books about that country. And it is special uh, in so many ways. Uh, and so in that regard, to see what's happening now is, as David said, it's you know, almost returning to, you know, the Afghans are good at this. They've been through it many, many times in the past. And, uh, you know, they're going through hard times again. I watch what's happening in that Panjshir Valley. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, man, that's a, that's a place that's seen a terrific amount of action yeah. over, you know, hundreds of years. Uh, and it's still going on. Yeah, let's hope yeah. we can collectively bring our soft power to bear on the region and just reinforce the the gains that were made. And uh, this is where diplomacy and uh, economics and other things come in into play very much. And they're very long-term efforts as well. But can I pivot to our part of the world, the Indo-Pacific? I mean, there's a, 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 I guess, a simplistic idea that US withdrawal from Afghanistan will leave it freer to, to think more about the Indo-Pacific. And can I ask you both to come in on this, perhaps start with Duncan. Um, what, what is, well, is that assumption correct? It's a very different um, area of responsibility. Um, and what does it mean for the Alliance? We've always brought good ideas to the Alliance, I say modestly, you know, Pine Gap going back many years. The Marines in Darwin, who, who I've visited a few times, they're fantastic and saw them in Honolulu as well. Um, Duncan, the Indo-Pacific, what now for the Indo-Pacific and for the implications for our alliance with the United States? Yeah, I don't think it's right necessarily to say that now that the wars in the Middle East are over, the US will have more uh, to sort of focus on, on the Pacific. Um, the US focus on the Pacific is in the United States national interest. It has been a Pacific power since its inception. Um, that hasn't changed, well, it hasn't changed other than to say that the US interests in the Pacific are being challenged now more than they have been for um, a generation. And so I, I think it, running the two together is, is a bit awkward. And you know, I just made the point a few minutes ago that I think this war on terror is not over. Um, you know, I, I'm confident. I'm confident that we will need to secure our societies uh, against the threat of terrorism well into the future. And how that's going to pan out, well, that's another matter. But but the fact that we will have to do that is enduring, in my view. Um, so um, that that is going to absorb some resources. But the point about the Pacific is that it is a different kind of threat. This is a geostrategic power shift um, and the United States has for uh, again the first time in a generation a an absolute peer competitor uh, more so than was ever the case I think with the Soviet mm-hmm. Union because of the economic strength of China um, but you know there is a geostrategic shift and the United States is focused on this I mean the people in Washington are watching yep. Uh, yep. 
And, and I look, the people in Europe uh, to see a shift there is amazing. I, I traveled the, the Atlantic seaboard as a, as a newly minted ambassador in 2000, and I guess it was 2012 or 13, and I couldn't spark an interest about China. Yep. And yet, 10 years later, in another capacity, I went back and it was the only subject on everybody's lips, uh, you know, because they come to realize that the Belt and Road was actually going to end in Europe. One end of the Belt and the Road is in Europe. Um, so, you know, China had come to them. Um, so I think the United States will follow its interests. And we need to watch this. We in Australia need to watch this very, very carefully. Um, I think the issue of, of alliances and perhaps partnerships is because uh, the alliance thing gets a bit tricky in the, the Asia-Pacific uh, area. But, uh, but I think the issue of or the Indo-Pacific but I think the issue of partnerships, um, and particularly I've been watching the development of the Quad, the, the resurrection of the Quad uh, over the last um, uh, 18 months or so, uh, I think ASEAN is going to, be, uh, going to have to be a focus for us all. And the United States and Australia will need to work with ASEAN uh, and see what we can do to get that organisation into kind of what I might describe as better shape for the strategic future that they all face. So um, I think this is momentous. And, uh, you know, as I mentioned earlier, coming off the base of a relationship with the United States forged in Middle East wars mm -hmm. is not a bad place to start um, for us to, you know, make sure we get our act together as we go forward. It will, of course, involve now the Japanese, the Koreans, uh, you know, there's a whole range of partners that we will need to start working with. I have said publicly that Australia will need to lift its diplomatic effort. Um, you know, as a former diplomat, I, I say that. It's not without, with rancour or, or criticism. I'm just saying we need to be able to uh, lift heavier weight in the diplomatic space. Yeah, mention of Europe reminds me that over the last two months there have been warships from five European powers, plus mm -hmm. India, plus Japan, plus Australia, and, of course, the US. And um, I was very struck by the German defence minister's comment um, when they were when their transit of the, the of the South China Sea was was protested, and and uh, she said the, to the effect that we are all in this together to reinforce our values and norms. So it was very reassuring. But David Petraeus, um, the Indo-Pacific, how do you see U.S. commitment over the coming years? As enormous, and you know, look. Duncan and I have both called into question to some degree what the U.S. administration uh, has done in Afghanistan. And I do think it's, it's not arguable that there is some uh, dent to our credibility, our relationship. At the very least, it allows China, which has publicly assessed the United States as a declining power, to say, see, we told you. And oh, by the way, you're going to count on them uh, for your security, this country or that country. But I think the administration is very keenly aware of that. The central focus of the administration has nothing to do again with Afghanistan or the war on terror and all of that, which, all of which has to continue, but in a sustainable, sustained way. Their focus from the beginning uh, has been to work with friends and allies and partners uh, around the world, some of which had very good relations with the previous administration, some of which got bruised a bit. Uh, during that time. So they started, of course, in the, in the Asia Pacific. Uh, they had, you know, again, summit meetings at all of these different levels, uh, ANZUS, the Quad, uh, Korea, et cetera, shifted to Europe. Uh, you had the G7 summit as well. You had the EU summit. You had the NATO summit. There was even a summit with Vladimir Putin. So all the world in furthering their establishment for, with the first time, I think, for the U.S., a really coherent, comprehensive whole of governments with an S on the end, because it's all of our governments and all of our capabilities together focus on the most important relationship in the world, which is that uh, between the U.S. and all of its allies and partners and China. Uh, in, in the best sense, to try to make that relationship as mutually beneficial as is absolutely possible. Uh, in a less sense, to ensure that there's no miscommunication, there's no misperception, there's no questioning of 
capabilities and willingness to employ those capabilities so there's no mistakes uh, out there on the high seas or in the skies. Um, that is the biggest of the biggest of the big uh, foreign policy ideas for this administration, noting, and again, rightly, and give them credit for all of this, that you know the president said foreign policy more than at any other time begins at home because first we have to combat the pandemic, then we have to get the economy going again, uh, then we have to invest in our human and physical infrastructure and bring the country together so that we can engage in this coherent, comprehensive whole of governments uh, approach focused far and away, you know, mostly, yes, it's an era of renewed great power competitions, but it's really, again, two great powers, uh, one of which has had the most extraordinary economic growth over 42 years of any country in history. Uh, and so all of us working together in that. Uh, and I think that, as, as you both have highlighted, the last 20 years of working together so very, very closely, uh, there's nothing, again, like, you know, I was trying to think the other day of how many of those um, ceremonies I attended in all the different places. Uh, it's as Anzac Day, I think it is, and you get and you, you you do it before the sun comes up. And I mean, we've done those at, at Leavenworth, Washington, Baghdad, Kabul, um, all all around the world. Um, these are really important shared experiences, and these relationships really do matter uh, as you then build what really is the most important focus in the world, which is all about the rebalance to the Indo-Pacific that began with the Obama administration, continued during the Trump administration, some important initiatives there, but not the degree of coherence uh, or whole of governments with an S on the end in all cases. And now really to build that out and to achieve the coherence and the comprehensiveness in every respect um, maybe with the exception of trade, I'd like to see us go to the get to get back to the Trans-Pacific Partnership. But there are domestic politics here in the United States, even as they are elsewhere. But so that is the focus, and that's the right focus. The theory was, you know, if we get don't have to spend so much time on Afghanistan, then we can spend it over here. That that theory is still to be proved because. The Situation Room table has probably been dominated by issues surrounding Afghanistan over the last several months at the least, and we'll see how it is going forward. Yes, and um, I'm reminded you're talking really about something that Secretary Austin and others are starting to flesh out, which is integrated deterrence. Deterrence very being so. a yes. very important part of our joint endeavour mm -hmm. to prevent yep. war. Um, and th these days, it's whole of government, all of the non-traditional threats are coming in, cyber, artificial intelligence, the whole mm -hmm. box and dice. But we're running out of time. And I, I just I guess I have to give Duncan the last word. Um, what do you see in the future in the Indo-Pacific for for integrated deterrence? What uh, General Petraeus has just so beautifully explained. Mm -hmm. Well, I remain glass half full around this. I mean, there's been a lot of what I think is kind of dangerous nonsense spoken about, you know, the inevitability of there being conflict and so on. I, I don't subscribe to that. I, I think that it is within the wit of man to actually manage what is happening in the uh, Indo-Pacific area. Uh, and we've got some very sophisticated governments around the world that are addressing that, that problem, and, and not the least of which is in Washington. Um, so I am glass half full about it, but what I am concerned about is that Australia will need to, you know, coming off the back of COVID, uh, coming off the back of those extraordinary years of uh, economic growth that we've had, we are going to have to fund uh, a lift in our uh, posture. That's our security posture. It's not just defence spending, but it's all sorts of other expenditure uh, which the public purse will have to bear in order to make Australia a more resilient place than, than it has been or than it is now. Um, and that, is going to, that impost on the public purse is going to affect us. You know, it's going to affect standards of living. It's, it's going to affect all kinds of things. Um, but I am glass half full about this. I mean, we, uh, we are in a, I think, a very strong position. Uh, our future does depend on China. There's no doubt about it. You know, the engagement with China is absolutely critical. And the quicker that we can get that back into shape, uh, the better. 
but uh, we don't sacri- we, we don't um, you know make concession in terms of our values. Uh, but we do need, uh, I think, to get back into uh, a dialogue with the, with the Chinese um, and, and to, uh, to improve that situation, but at the same time making sure that we are as secure as we can be going forward, tighten up the relationships that we've got, the very important alliance that we have with the United States. Um, this is no time to be walking away from the United States. This is a time to be walking towards the United States. And vice versa strong and positive note to finish on. I'll throw back to uh, Professor Simon Jackman, who will um, finish off the proceedings. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Jane. Um, that, that was terrific. And, and in the, uh, in the pregame, we were fleshing out the list of topics. And I said, this is shaping up like a, a four year dissertation, not a one hour <laughs> webinar. There's, there's plenty more there to talk about and 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 that's a product of the fact you know that's what's going to happen when you've got people of the caliber of, of Duncan Lewis and David Petraeus um the, the journeys they've both been on in in serving their respective nations uh, but in turn um the, you know with carriage of the Australia US uh, alliance key in 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 their in their service it was fascinating to hear uh general petraeus talk about um um the the, the, the thrust towards uh, getting appropriate doctrine up and running. Um, for some of that period, um, I was a professor at Stanford University where I had the great honor of, of taking on students, uh, people typically coming to us at the captain major level on their way uh, to, to more senior ranks in the US Army. But clearly I was sent here by Petraeus, was sort of was stamped on them. Uh, and, and, and of course, General Petraeus himself, um, um, part of that, one of the first sort of a pioneer, if you will, in that, that warrior scholar model, a PhD uh, from the Woodrow Wilson School at Princeton. Um, um, I think, I think um, many, many of the junior officers are seeking to emulate uh, General Petraeus's career arc. Um, and and with, with support from General Petraeus, I, I had the great privilege of teaching him, coincidentally, right on as 9-11 hit, and, and uh, some of them, uh, and then a stream following but many of them, uh, General Petraeus, grooming their careers, thinking of themselves as being um, people that would operate in, 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 in the Pacific, Philippines, Southeast Asia being their big uh, areas of focus. And you may, you may know a particular individual I've got in mind as I'm describing that career arc, but who saw over the course of the, their destinies and, and, the, and the focus of their, not just their careers, but, but of the US Army in particular, uh, uh, go uh, to the Middle East uh, for 20 years. It just, I'm, I'm so thankful for the for the time you've given us today to help get a, get a sense of that arc and the lessons learned. Um, uh, Duncan uh, Lewis has a fabulous um, op-ed uh, in the Australian newspaper this morning here in Australia. Um, I, I'd, I'd call that recommended reading. Um, it, it's in in in, a, in with great economy of words. Duncan has also connected how the US-Australia alliance, where it sits at the end of this 20-year um, period since 9-11, and, and touches on some of the themes that came out today, the, the, the way that the alliance and the interoperability, and in ways that aren't often visible to the, to, to the, to the public, um, particularly intelligence-sharing relationship, um, something that keeps both Australia and the United States uh, safe or safer um, every day of the week, uh, and, and again, just a place where we weren't at qualitatively, say on September 10, uh, 2001, but is indeed one of the lasting legacies uh, of the, uh, the post 9-11 period, to which I'd add, um, there hasn't been another 9-11. Um, um, and in no small measure, uh, that, that's, a, that's an intelligent success story um, uh, with, with Australia and other partners of the US playing key roles um, from time to time. Um, um, so thank you again to Jane Hardy. Um, great to have you uh, moderating. Um, um, that, was, that was a fabulous hour. It went very, very quickly. Uh, to David Petraeus, it's, it's now 9 p.m. Uh, East Coast. They will let you get on with your evening, sir. Uh, thank you so much for an hour of your time. Both Duncan and David contributed to the U.S. Study Center Alliance of 70 volume that will be launching very, very shortly. 
um, um, uh, uh, fabulous contributions from both gentlemen. Uh, and and, and um, General Petraeus, of course, was one of the only authors also to give us a fabulous photograph. Um, uh, but there he is mentioning sort of his keen awareness and visibility on on, on Australian military sacrifice. It's a, it's a, it's a very poignant photo of, of uh, General Petraeus with Brendan Nelson, Director General of, uh, Director of the Australian War Memorial, taken at the War Memorial. Uh, uh, and, uh, and it was uh, G uh, General Petraeus that sent that photo along to accompany his, his contribution. Thank you, General. All the poppies on the wall, it was... That's right. It, it, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an incredible photo. Um, um, I, you can kind of see that you are taking in what you're looking at there uh, and, and it deserves pride of place in, in our volume. And, and thank you for, for, for sending that photo through as along with, along with the chapter. Thanks, Duncan. Thanks, Simon. Thanks, David. Thanks, Jay. Thanks, Simon. Thanks, Duncan. Thanks, Ambassador.